Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 17 verses of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And to you also are, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have have had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation, of it, for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to look tonight at, specifically at these two verses, verses 16 and 17. Um, I'm going to be using a word pronounced in Northern Irish called par. Um, there, There are several words we can use to uh, critique a Northern Irish accent. One is par, because we speak about par, not par. And the other is donkey, because nobody over here says the word donkey the way we do. So, But I'm going to talk about par tonight, and specifically God's par. Now, it was Lord Acton in 1887 who said this, par tends to corrupt, and absolute par corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Whenever men are given power, it nearly always goes to their head. This seems to be his sentiment. If we think of all the people of our world today who, who wield a power, we might consider that they have power to change things. For example, the President of the United States has the power to press a button and launch countless nuclear warheads to the destruction of millions of people. Governments have power to demand taxes to run their respective nations. 
Bosses and large, high-powered companies have power uh, to hire and fire people as they see fit. Wherever we look in our world, we find that there are men and women who wield power over others. Indeed, sometimes this is in the form of dictatorships and sometimes in the form of, democra- in the form of democracy. But for all the power that these men and women and nations have, it's quite limited compared to the power that Paul talks of in the first chapter of the letter to the Romans. Paul here is writing to the church in Rome, and he is explaining to them that he longs to go and see them in verse 11, so that he can impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. But he's been prevented so far from being able to be with them. Yet he expresses this, this great burden that he has that he, and, and desire that he has to preach this gospel in Rome, verse 15. He sees himself, this great apostle, he sees himself as being under an obligation to all Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the sophisticated, to the lowly and to the unlearned. He desires that he would preach the gospel in Rome so that he may reap a harvest, see people converted. As he preaches there. And then in verses 16 and 17, Paul lays out for us the reasons why he wants to preach this gospel in Rome. He tells us how we might experience God's power in this world. So let's have a look at this. And I want to look at it in terms of three three main things. Firstly, we're going to look at experiencing God's power. Knowing God's righteousness, living by God's promises. Experiencing God's power. Secondly, knowing God's righteousness. And thirdly, living by God's promises. Paul was eager to preach in Rome. This message which he had been set apart for, if you look in verse 1. Paul was an apostle. He was commissioned by God to preach God's gospel. Not his gospel, but God's gospel. It's not a message that Paul just decided one day that he would draw draw up on the back of a packet of cigarettes. This was God's message. It's a message regarding what, what was promised long before Paul even was born. A message that many others had pointed towards and to which the Old Testament would reveal. It's a message regarding God's Son, verse 3. It's a message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who in in human terms is the son of David, the king of Israel, who sits on David's throne and in terms of his godhood was shown to be God by his resurrection from the dead. The gospel Paul preached is this message of a promised Messiah, a deliverer, a rescuer, a God-man. This is the message Paul had been entrusted with. A message of a crucified king and a resurrected Lord. So why is he so keen then to preach this gospel in Rome? Why does he see himself as under obligation to Greek and non-Greek? Why would he want to preach this message at all? Because he is not ashamed of it. Verse 16. The NIV translation masks the way this continues on. The, for it, in verse six, 16 it says, I am not ashamed, but it actually should say, for I am not ashamed. It leads on 
The reason why he wants to preach this gospel is because he is not ashamed of it in verse 16. Now when you think about it, this gospel at first glance, it doesn't seem all that spectacular, does it? A dead God on a cross. The method of execution given to the lowest form of scum on the planet in the Roman world. It seems pretty small, seems pretty petty next to the great philosophies of the intellectuals of Rome and ancient Greece. Did it not? Did it not seem to, it didn't seem to appeal to the intellectuals of Paul's day. I mean, can you, tr- can you imagine trying to, to preach a crucified God to Roman citizens? Who would teach their children that crucifixion was the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody? Just think how revolting they would have considered it. How utterly fantastic. Here was the capital city of the whole world at the time. The center for arts, for culture, for sophisticated society. All roads led to Rome. There were the elite classes, the center of power in the whole empire. Can you imagine how they would have received this message? Indeed, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Listen to Polly Toynbee of, of the Guardian newspaper. as She, she writes about, specifically about C.S. Lewis's Narnia, but more generally about Christianity. She says this. Uh, well, this is in regard to the film that was released several years ago. Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant, she says, is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? See, to the intellectuals who value reason and wisdom, the message of the cross is foolishness, an incomprehensible riddle that brings only scorn and contempt. It makes no sense to them. They find it revolting as they inwardly look to their own wisdom as the yardstick by which everything else is to be, uh, uh, everything else is to be judged by. And while the Jews, they were no better, they sought signs, as Paul would, would write to the Corinthians. They looked for fire to come down from heaven, for the sun to stand still in the sky. The message of a crucified Messiah, their Messiah, was a stumbling block to them. How would they listen? Or what about the spiritual gurus of today, who seek to get lost in the unfathomable nothingness of inner enlightenment? getting drunk on ecstatic experiences, or maybe even worse, seeking to find enlightenment, which turns out, of course, always to be that enlightenment which leads us to the fact that we ourselves are God for some reason. And what about those who, who, look, for the, who look to the greatness of human achievement, who pull out those creeds of humanity is getting better all the time. The more advanced we get, the better we get. They don't much like the gospel, do they? They're always seeking after the latest and best, not some ancient story from a crusty old book. You see, it seems that there was any amount of reasons for Paul to be ashamed of the gospel. Any amount of reasons for us to be ashamed of the gospel. And did consider all the suffering Paul went through because of it. Flogged, stoned, hated, scorned, shipwrecked. 
Yet even when, he looked, when it looked like the odds were, were stacked against him, he boldly proclaims that he is not ashamed of this gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. It is the power of God. You see, in the proclamation of the gospel, in the heralding of this message, the very power of God, the God who created the universe, is active in the world. Here in the gospel of God, the power of God is experienced. Here is absolute power which doesn't corrupt, but rather transforms. This gospel, which seems so weak, so incapable of affecting anyone, of bringing any person to believe it, its message actually wields a power like nothing else. A power greater than all the might of imperial Rome. A power greater than that of any nation under heaven. Sure, the, the Roman emperor had power. At his command, he could take life. But here in this message was the power to give life. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink once wrote this, that knowledge should be life. Who can fathom that? That knowledge should be life. Who can fathom that? And this power is the power of God for salvation. The power of God exercised in creating the heavens and earth is here exercised and applied to bring about a recreation of life. A salvation that is a rescue from sin and its inevitable punishment. A salvation which, that transforms lives and changes hearts and minds. A power God exercises to give new life to people who are under the power of sin. You see, this gospel that Paul preaches and that we preach is God's power for salvation. It's not for making us wealthy. It's not for giving us healing from diseases or sicknesses. It's not from providing, to provide us with ecstatic experiences so that we can experience God on demand every time a certain type of music comes on or every time we're in a certain place or every time we take a certain chemical substance. It's not for our manipulation. It's an act of God's recreation in the lives of those who belong to this broken, sinful, and corrupt world. And who's it for? Everyone who believes. The gospel message is for everyone who believes it. For those who will trust Christ, rest on him and what he has done. For those who will believe this message of God's power. And for those who believe they experience that power in their lives. And it brings transformation. It is the power of God exercised in the gospel of God to bring the salvation of God to the people of God. See, humanity on its own is incapable of getting this salvation by its own power. We are powerless when it comes to fixing our brokenness and our alienation from our creator. That's why the gospel is needed. For it brings God's salvation for us. And those who believe this gospel message of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ experience this salvation through the power of God in their life. The same power which raised Christ from the dead, which in the words of verse 4 declared him to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, is at work in those who believe. Or as Paul would say to the Colossians in Colossians 2, 12 and 15, 
having been buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, kneeling it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. As the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are raised with Christ to new life. We pass from death to life and are rescued from all our trespasses. And it's for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It's for the young and the old. It's for the religious and the non-religious. It's for the banker and the baker. It's for the teacher and the tent maker. It's for all those who are willing to trust the one whom it's all about. You see, to preach the gospel is not just to convey an idea that changes people's thinking, although it is that. It is a cosmic event where God shatters the dominion of Satan and his hold over people and brings them into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his own beloved son. As Cotton Mather, the great American Puritan once said, it restores the dominion of God in the hearts of men. When the gospel is preached, the devil's power over lives is disarmed and the new creation begins as people are brought into a restored relationship with their creator and are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You see, for all the power that we may think we have, and governments think they have to change lives. We see just how limited we really are compared to the power that is yielded by the word of the cross. For God exercises this power through this word, this gospel word. And we experience his power as we believe that gospel word. So we can see, we can see just why Paul was not ashamed of this message. Because it was an unstoppable, irresistible power from God to achieve his will. And the only part Paul played was to preach it, was to tell people about it. Just why then is this message so powerful? Why did it bring bring salvation? Well, he explains it in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This is not some impersonal force like Star Wars. It's not some force for moving objects or battling lightsabers. It is the power to make us right with God. It's the power to bring us a new standing before the judgment of God. A power to make us righteous. For in this salvation that God gives us, we know God's righteousness. Born into Adam, all of us are by nature under God's wrath. Morally corrupt. The only part of God we experience is his wrath. But here in the gospel, we come to know his righteousness. It's not something we can earn ourselves by being good or by by being religious. It's a gift of God, a gift revealed in the gospel, in Christ. For to believe this gospel is to be credited with a right standing before the bar of heaven. Through the gift of God's righteousness. That is the righteousness that comes only by faith in Christ. 
He became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Paul would say elsewhere to the Corinthian church. So this power of God is exercised in salvation to transform our standing before the judge of heaven and earth so that we might have a restored relationship with our creator, that we might live in a new life with him. But more than this, more than this, This righteousness we receive transposes us out of a sinful life into a life lived in the Spirit of God. Into the beginning of a new life that will only be be complete when we enter into our inheritance with God. That he has prepared for us in a new heavens and a new earth. And this is the great theme that Paul expounds in this whole letter. How can sinful men and women be made right with God? How are we justified before God? It answers that age-old question. How does a sinful man stand before a holy God? That was the question Luther struggled with. As an Augustinian monk in Germany in the 15th century. As he himself said, if ever a monk could have earned his way to heaven by monkish ways, then Luther would have had no trouble. Yet he himself, he never found any assurance of forgiveness. He never knew the gift of God's righteousness. Until reading this very verse, he began to realize he experienced the power of God. Listen to what he says himself. Let him describe it. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I give heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scriptures showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also find in other terms an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, The glory of God. Notice what he says when he realized it. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther had experienced the power of God because he had come to know the righteousness of God. No longer did he have to work his way to heaven. Now he could enter the very presence of God himself because he was justified by the righteousness that God gives through faith. And how can we know that righteousness? Well, it's by faith. By faith from first to last. By faith. By trusting what God has done in Christ and him alone. We experience the power of God and know the righteousness of God when we trust the promises of God in the gospel. It's not just a matter of believing today and then forgetting about it tomorrow. It's not a free ticket to heaven. It's by faith from first to last. It's by trusting and believing the gospel promise every day of our lives. When we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, it's by faith. 
when we take a shower, when we go to work, it's by faith. Every single day of our lives, we must trust in this promise that by resting on the work of Christ and him alone, we are justified by God on account of him and not of ourselves. It's not trusting the gospel plus my good works. It's not trusting the gospel plus doing religious things. It's finally and completely by trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ and absolutely nothing else. And Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2, 14, the the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk, of course, was a priest in the temple of Jerusalem and was lamenting at the awful state of the wickedness of the people of God and he prays to God to do something about it. And so God answered him, okay, I will. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. And they're going to carry the people of God into exile. And Habakkuk protested, saying to God, that isn't fair. The Babylonians are even worse than we are. But God told Habakkuk that was his purpose. And he must live by faith. He must trust in God and him alone. He must live by faith in God's provision and grace for him and in nothing else. The transformed life is lived by the promises of God, trusting God and what he has decisively done on the cross. You see, this, this is the real transformation of lives. Governments can pass legislation to change people's lives and lift people out of poverty and restrain the evils of society. Nations can fight against other nations for the cause of good in the world. And that's brilliant. But here in the gospel... It's true power to change lives. Here is where societies are truly changed. Where true heartfelt change takes place. Here the, the people who hate their neighbors are transformed into the people who love their neighbors. Here is a transformation that turns the abusive, angry person into the person who serves others. Here is the power to turn hatred to love. It turns the rebellious, sinful creature back to full dependence on their creator. Here is the message which makes makes new that which is broken, which straightens that which is crooked, which brings freedom from bondage, which turns the slave into a, a son or a daughter of God, which makes the sinner righteous. Here in this message is the the life giving power of God which changes people standing before him. Paul wanted to preach this message because he knew as he preaches the gospel, God is at work. He had confidence in this message, not in himself, but in this message, which brings God's reality to bear on the unreality of this world we live in. So the question then that confronts us Will we be ashamed of this gospel? Will we scorn it? Will we laugh at it? Will we ignore it? Will we look at it as nonsense? Will we be ashamed of it? Will we not believe it? Or will we believe? Will we be transformed? Will we accept God's grace? Will we hold on to the promises And experience the power of God in our lives to make us right with him. Will we believe this gospel? Maybe you're a Christian already tonight. 
will you be tempted to water it down, to make it acceptable to the intellectual elites and the like? Will we bow to the peer pressure that we're under to forget about the gospel? Will we be anonymous believers, only saying anything about the gospel in the presence of Christians and shying away from it when we're speaking to non-Christians? Or will we preach it? Will we unleash its power, the power of God to bring salvation, the power of God to bring the salvation of God to the people of God who live by the promises of God? Friends, the world needs the gospel. Dundee needs the gospel. Scotland needs the gospel. But how will they believe unless we tell them? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that it is powerful. Powerful to change people's lives, to transform their standing before you, to bring them out of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, to make them righteous. Father, we pray that we will not be ashamed of this message, but that we will preach it. And that as people hear it, Father, that your power will be at work in their lives to transform and change them. How we would pray this for Dundee, for the students on campus for the housing estates around Dundee, for Scotland and for the world. Give us a passion, a, a motivation and a vision to trust the power of your gospel, not to be ashamed of it, but to preach it. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.